0: You have your Bibles open up to 2 Timothy chapter 1. In just a few moments, we're gonna spend our time really looking at verse 12. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12. We've all heard the phrase when we were kids. If you if you know it, if you remember it, say it with me. Sticks and stones may break my bones. Hurt words will never hurt me, words will never harm me. Don't you wish that was actually true? See, in reality, the words that we speak actually have the ability to hurt a lot worse than any stick ever could. And the Bible says that that words are very powerful. In fact, the Bible says in Proverbs 18, 21, that death and life are in the power of the tongue. The words that we choose to speak are important and they can greatly affect the lives of of our lives and the lives of those who are around us. But another power behind a person's words is that they can show you what is on the inside of a person. Listen to what Jesus said in Luke 6:45. The good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good, and the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. Dr. Rogers used to always say it this way: What's down in the well comes up in the bucket. And what that means is this, is that whatever is in your heart will eventually make its way out of your mouth. And that you can, you can, you can live your life and you can, you can act certain ways, but the, ultimately if you hang around somebody long enough and you listen to the way they speak, you will learn what is in their heart. Words are powerful. If you don't believe me, I want to give you a proof case over the next 30 or so minutes where you can watch this in real time. For some of you, as I speak, the words I'm saying will connect into your minds and help form a thought into your brain and and ultimately maybe even change the way that you think on an issue. And that is the power of the word of God and the words that are used. But for other people here over the next 30 minutes, my words will have the power to put you to sleep. And so I'm hoping it's the first of the two, but you can look around in real time and see the power that words can have. Now, last words... Last words are very powerful. When someone comes to the end of their life and they know it, what they choose to say in those last moments can really tell you a lot about who they are and what they actually believe. You see, people can put on a face and they can put on a show, but when you get to the end and you know it, things change and you get a chance to know something deeper about a person. I recently was curious and looked up the last words of of four famous people, and I wanted to share those with you today. The first person I want to talk about is Billy Graham. We all know Billy Graham. He went to be with the Lord in 2018. He reached countless people for the gospel of Jesus Christ, both in America and all around the world. But do you know what his last words were? The last words that anybody heard him speak was when his family was visiting him. His daughter and her family were visiting him right before he went to be with the Lord. And as they were walking out, his great-granddaughter turned to him and said, I love you. And he took, looked back to her and said, I love you. Last words Billy Graham ever spoke was a statement of love to his great-granddaughter. I mean, what a great way to leave this earth in peace, in passing on love and, and confidence and your love for your family to the next generation and the one to follow. Now let's go to the other end of the spectrum here, and let's talk about Karl Marx. So Karl Marx is a German leader who formed Marxism, which ultimately formed into what we know as communism today. This man had incredible influence over not just his nation, but the entire world, and his ideas are still affecting the way people think even today. When Karl Marx came to the end of his life, a nurse was caring for him, and she realized he was about to die. So she went and got a piece of paper and a a pen and said, is there any last words that you would have to remember you'd like me to write down for posterity? And his response was this. These were his last words. Go on, get out. Last words are for fools who have not yet said enough. What a bitter way to die. What about Winston Churchill? Incredible military strategist, a a man who led a life of such adventure, led uh, Britain to victory in World War II. Incredible leader, incredible thought leader, incredible military leader. But you may not know that Winston Churchill was an agnostic. And what that means is that he did not even know if there was a God, and if there was, we couldn't know him. And uh, Winston Churchill, when he died, his last words were this, I am bored with it all. Man, that's a sad way to die. For a man that lived a life of such adventure and victory, he died feeling bored and empty. Last person we'll look at is this, R.G. Lee. Dr. Lee was a former pastor of our church, and he is a man that could paint pictures with words like nobody else ever could. And he was able to preach the gospel and bring things to life because he studied hour upon hour upon hour, studied the dictionary. And he would always search for the best word. One time his daughter approached him and said, the words you use, they're too much, they're too big. And his response was this, my Lord is worthy of the best words that I can find. And so this is a man that really took words seriously. Just before he went to be on, uh, go to be with the Lord, one of our other former pastors, Dr. Adrian Rogers, went to go spend some time with him. And these are the words that Dr. Rogers wrote about that moment. Just before Dr. Lee went to heaven, he had a vision of heaven. He had lapsed into a deep sleep, almost like a coma. Awakening, he reported that he saw into heaven. He said that in the vision, he saw the Lord Jesus. He saw his mother, and he saw that golden city. When asked to describe what he had seen, this man who had more nearly than any of the rest of us had mastered the English language, he said this. I can't describe it. My vocabulary is inadequate. And I never did it justice in my preaching. Dr. Lee, on his deathbed, knowing he was about to to end this life, ended with hope for his future and an excitement and anticipation about what was to come. Have you ever thought about the Apostle Paul and what his last words would have been? You see, Paul spent his last days in prison before he was ultimately beheaded underneath the evil emperor Nero. See, Paul knew exactly that he was about to die. And just before he died, he wrote the letter that we have called 2 Timothy. This is the last letter that we have that was written by Paul. And it was clear from his writing that Paul understood that he was about to die and that these would be his last words to Timothy. In fact, towards the end of the letter in 2 Timothy 4, 6 and following, he says this, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, he will award to me on that day. Not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. Paul ended his life looking forward. He knew he was about to die, but he had a hope for his future. So as we look this morning at 2 Timothy, it's very important for us to remember and to understand that we are reading the words of a man who is in prison and we are reading the words of a man who knew he was about to die. So we're going to spend our, our time looking at verse 12, but in order to get context and understand what he's saying, let's begin looking at verse 1. Paul begins the letter by introducing himself. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus. Paul now turns and introduces who the letter is intended for. Verse 2. To Timothy, my beloved son. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. Paul here identifies Timothy as his son, but he is not his physical son, but his spiritual son. What does that mean? This is a a, a person Paul that has invested in Timothy and he has built him up, he has mentored him, he has discipled him. He has treated him like he would his own son. Paul was really interested in the development and the future of Timothy. Timothy was very important to Paul, and Paul loved Timothy like he loved a son. He goes on verse 3 to says, I thank God, Timothy, whom I serve with a clear conscience the way that my forefathers did, as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day, longing to see you even as I recall your tears, So that I may be filled with joy. Now it's important, it's impossible when we read that to not read the love that Paul has for Timothy. It's important for us to think about the Bible in this way. See, the Bible is not just a bunch of random words given to us on a page and and where we can just open it up to a, a random passage and pull a random verse, and that's our verse for the day. That's not the way the Bible is intended to be read. It's important to remember for us is that the Bible was written by real people to real people. The Bible, however, was not written to you. 2 Timothy was not written to you. But 2 Timothy was written to Timothy, but it was written for us. You see, God inspired the words that Paul was writing to Timothy, and he preserved it to this day for the edification and the building up of the saints of God. But it's important to know that it was not originally, in its original context, written to us. All of Scripture was preserved for us and is written for us, but not to us. And it's important that we not read the Bible this way, that we don't just strip it of all its life and read the Bible like it's an instruction manual. No, this is a letter that was written between two good friends, between a man and his spiritual son. Now listen to the way he goes on to encourage Timothy in verse 5. For I'm mindful of the sincere faith that is within you, that first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure... That is in you as well. Now, can you imagine Paul sending this letter and Timothy getting it and he's opening it and he's reading these letters from his his mentor and he knows his mentor is dying and in prison and he's eating up these words and what the encouragement that 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 line, that sentence would have done to Timothy? Paul's saying, Timothy, your faith is doing well. The Lord is, you love the Lord and your faith is alive, it is strong. Your grandmother, she loved the Lord. Your mother, I saw it in her as well. She loved the Lord. And now, Timothy, I see it in you as well. Paul is building up Timothy here and encouraging him for the good that he sees in him. Now to verse 6. For this reason, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Remember your calling, Timothy. When things get tough, when they get hard, and it's going to get hard, remember your calling, Remember the time that we laid our hands on you and we prayed for you and God set you apart. Remember when you were saved that God called you and he set you apart with a special purpose. Do not forget that, Timothy. Verse 7, for God has not given us a spirit of timidity or fear, but one of power and of love and of discipline. Don't be afraid, Timothy. When times get tough, know that, that the fear that you fear in that moment is not from the Lord. God has not given you a spirit of fear. He has given you a spirit of power. Timothy, God has not given you a spirit of fear. He's given you a spirit of love. Timothy, God has not given you a spirit of fear. He has given you a spirit of discipline and one of a strong, sound mind. Now, why do you think Paul would have written that to Timothy? Except maybe Timothy struggled with fear, and Paul knew it. Maybe they had talked about it in some of their mentorship sessions and discipleship time, and and maybe Paul knew that this was a very real thing that Timothy dealt with. But in the days that were to come, Paul knew that Timothy would need to take bold stands for the gospel of Jesus Christ and that he knew his own time on life was coming on earth was coming to an end and that Timothy would need to take some bold stands. Verse 8 or verse 8. Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me his prisoner. But join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Don't be ashamed of the Lord Timothy. Don't be ashamed that I'm in prison. Don't be afraid to suffer for the Lord, Timothy. Don't run from the suffering. Come on in. The water is fine. The gospel is worth it all, Timothy, and never be ashamed of what God has called you to do. But join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and he has called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his purpose. And grace which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and he brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. What's Paul saying here? He's reminding Timothy of the truth of the gospel. We have been called with a holy calling, not because of who we are, not because of what we've done, but because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has already done. He has abolished death and he has brought us to life. Now to verse 12. For this reason, I also suffer these things. Why does Paul suffer? Why is he telling Timothy that he suffers? For this reason, for the sake of the gospel, because of the gospel, that is why I'm in prison. Because of the gospel and the calling that he has placed in my life to be an apostle, a teacher, a preacher of the gospel, I find myself about to die. Because of his calling in the gospel, he was facing this persecution. Now, let me take a moment away from what Paul is saying to Timothy. I want to address everybody in this room. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have been called with a holy calling. You are different than the rest of the world. You are an ambassador, a messenger for Jesus Christ. Jesus has chosen you to be the messenger in the way in which the gospel would get to the ends of the earth. And because of that, you can expect that you will face hardship and persecution in this life. Paul would write to Timothy later in this letter, 2 Timothy 3.12, and say, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. In reality, it's been pretty easy to be a Christian in America. Not only has it been easy, it's been the popular thing to do. Most people, a lot of people in this, in this country claim the name of Christ even though they know nothing of him. Because it's the easy thing to say, oh, I'm a Christian. I, I'm a, I'm a, I go to church, I'm a Christian. It's the easy cultural thing to do. But I don't know if you've noticed, that's been changing lately in terms of the popularity and the acceptance of the gospel. There's a very viable future for each one of us as Christians that could become very uncomfortable. But we shouldn't be surprised about that because Jesus said that in this world, we would have tribulation. In America, we've had the ability to preach the gospel freely. And you've had the ability to gather and worship freely without fear of retribution. But now in 2023, we are told that we can no longer say a man cannot be a woman we're told we must deny God's created order. It feels like so much in our culture has changed in just the last year, and it's only going to continue to change for the worse. Because of Paul's stand for the gospel, he found himself in prison. Because of Paul's stand for the gospel, he faced an imminent death. What are we willing to face? Are we willing to follow Jesus through persecution and hardship, or are we only good as long as the the times are easy and the persecution is light. I'm grateful for the words that Paul gives us in this verse because it shows us why he was able to not be ashamed in the face of persecution and death and why we can not be ashamed as well. Verse 12, for this reason I suffer these things but I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him Until that day. With the time we have left this morning, I want us to walk through that verse and pull four very simple truths out of it. Now, I'm not here with any earth-shattering new ideas, and I'm not here certainly to impress you. But I do hope as you hear the words that Paul said and as God speaks to you, that you will ask yourself this question. Can I say this? Can I say the same thing that Paul said? The first statement I want us to consider is this. For I know... Whom I have believed. You see, Paul could say, I'm not ashamed because I know whom I have believed. Paul was not ashamed because of his own ability or because of what he had done. Paul was not ashamed because of who Jesus is. And this is the difference between a head knowledge and a heart knowledge. See, we all know things about God, but do we really know God? Because there's a difference. We all read our Bibles and and we come to church and we know stories about God and things that he has done. We know Genesis 1-1 that says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We know that he is an almighty creator and that he created everything around us. But do we know him? Is he personal to you? Can you say like David the psalmist said in Psalm 23-1 when he said, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd. I have everything that I need. How much of your knowledge this morning is about God versus actually knowing God? I recently had an opportunity to go on a mission project to the Netherlands. And while I was there, I had to get gas for a vehicle one night. And I realized that the gas station closed at 11. It was 1030. So I went over there pretty quickly. And after I got gas, I felt the Lord tell me to share the gospel with the gas station attendant. And I went in there, he was about to close. It was just the two of us in there. And I started sharing the gospel with him and it became very evident very quickly that he knew things about God, but he did not know God. See, as we were talking, he showed me his earring that had a cross on it. And he told me about his Catholic upbringing in South America. But there was clear there was no relationship with the Lord. I needed to let him get back to work. And as we finished the conversation, I told him that I would pray for him. And what he said to me at the end of that conversation has stuck with me as I've thought about it a lot since he said it. He said, hey, when you talk to the Lord, can you tell him that I said hello? It was such a sad moment in that moment realizing that this guy had no clue that he was created for a relationship with God. He was created not just to know things about God, but to know him. Do you know God? Not just about him. Do you know him? Paul was looking death directly in the face. And he said, I am not ashamed because I know, I know whom I have believed. Can you say that as well? In the late 1900s, there was a preacher named S.M. Lockridge. If you don't know S.M. Lockridge, I encourage you to get to know him. Pastor Lockridge was a man that intimately knew the Lord, and he knew how to preach. So in one of his sermons, he took some time to describe who the Lord is, and I want you to hear it in his own words.
1: I wonder, do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful, he's imperially powerful, he's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son, he's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled, he's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He heals the sick, he cleans the lepers, he forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent and he beautifies the meager. I wonder if you know him. He's the key to knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness he's the highway of holiness he's the gateway of glory do you know him well his life is matchless his goodness is limitless his mercy is everlasting his love never changes his word is enough his grace is sufficient his reign is righteous and his yoke is easy and his burden is lighter i wish i could describe him to you he's indescribable he's incomprehensible he's invincible he's irresistible you can't get him out of your mind you can't you can't get him off of your hand. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. The Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. Hey, that's my king. That's Marky.
0: Amen, Pastor Lockridge. Now I want to ask you, do you know him? Not just about him, do you know him? You know, God created us for more than what we experience in this life most days. See, I'm not just talking, do you know him in the sense of have you received him in your life as Lord and Savior? That's important and that's the first step in everything. But since then, what has your relationship with God looked like? Do you know him more today than you did yesterday? Will you love him more tomorrow than you do today? See, God created us for a relationship that's ever deepening and ever growing. You you will never get to the end of who God is. David Jett preached last Sunday, and he said that when it comes to the things of God at best, at absolute best, every single one of us is in kindergarten. We will never get to understand the fullness of who God is. But that's part of the joy of the journey of every day getting to know him more and more. Do you know him? Paul said, for this reason I suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And if you truly know God, then you will have no choice but to continue the statement with Paul when he said this secondly, and I am convinced that he is able. If you know him whom you have believed, if you truly know who God is, you will have absolutely no choice but to then say he is able. It doesn't matter what comes next. There is nothing that is too difficult for God to do. Every time we doubt God's ability to do something, every time we doubt God in a situation, it says absolutely nothing about who God is and everything about our own faith. If there's anything in your life right now that you think is too big for God to handle or that you've not trusted Him to handle, then you do not know who God is. We used to sing a song when we were kids that went like this My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. But we seem to have forgotten that song a lot in our lives. In fact, if you look at most of our lives, and you look at the song of our lives, it more often goes like this. My God is so big, but this problem is bigger. My God is so strong, but not quite as strong as this problem in my life. My God is so mighty, but you know, he might not be able to handle this small inconvenience that I've got over here. So often we we claim that we believe in God and that we know God and that we follow him. But when you look at our actions, we don't actually believe that he is able. And every time it's because we don't truly know who he is. Paul was looking death directly in the face. And he was able to say, I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced, I am persuaded, I am absolutely 100% certain that he is able. The world would say, Paul, why would you say that? You're facing Nero. He is ruthless towards Christians. You stand no chance of survival. Paul would say, but have you seen my God? Because he knew his God was able. The Old Testament tells us a story in the book of Daniel about three boys who were taken into captivity into the land of Babylon. And these three boys loved the Lord, and they found themselves in an incredibly difficult situation of having to be surrounded by pagan gods, and by those who worship pagan gods. These three boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, loved the Lord, and they were faithful to do what God called them to do while in the foreign land. One day, the evil king, Nebuchadnezzar, decides to build a golden statue of himself and says, hey, when I want the whole nation to get together, and when the music plays, I want everybody to bow and to worship. So the time comes, the, the statue is built, and, and they play the music, and the entire nation bows before the, the, the false god except for these three boys, who stood bravely, not bowing to an idol. We read the rest of the story in Daniel 3, 13 and following. It says, Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, he gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then these three men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar responded, he said, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Is it true that you do not serve my gods or worship my golden image that I have set up? Now listen to how graceful and generous Nebuchadnezzar is here. Now if you're ready, at the moment that you hear the sound of the horn, of the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, and the bagpipe, and all the kinds of music. If you're ready to fall down and worship the image that I have made, very well. All is good. You will be forgiven. It will be like it never happened. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can save you out of my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not even need to give you an answer. Our minds have already been made up on this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve, he is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, Let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods and we are not going to worship the golden image that you have set up. Talk about some powerful last words. And we know from the rest of the story that Nebuchadnezzar in anger and rage had them heat up the furnace much hotter than it ever was. They bound them with rope and threw them into the fire. And as Nebuchadnezzar and his officials watched to watch these three boys die, They saw them not dying, but standing and walking. And suddenly, in the words of Nebuchadnezzar, there was a fourth, and he looked like the son of God. And in that moment, he sees them walk out of the fire and untouched, other than the fact that the ropes that they were bound with have now been burned off. And these three boys were rescued from the fire by their Lord. And they knew that he could and that he was able. That is the exact kind of faith that Paul had in this passage. Paul knew in whom he believed, and he knew that God was able Now, what specifically was Paul believing God was able to do? The third statement is this, to guard what I have entrusted to him. I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him. Now, this morning we're reading from the New American Standard, and and as I was reading in different translations, I read through the Christian Standard, the CSB, which is a, a translation I read a lot, and I noticed something interesting. It said something different. It said that he is able to guard what has been entrusted to me. So I started looking at it and said, all right, which one is it? Is God going to guard what I have entrusted to him? Or is God going to guard what has been entrusted to me? The more I read it and the more I prayed it, the more I realized there's not much of a difference at all. See, everything we have, we're meant to be giving back to the Lord. But we have nothing to give back to the Lord that he has not first given us. You see, we came into this world with nothing and we will leave with nothing. Nothing. Brother Steve tells a story of a funeral of a rich man, and somebody leaned over and said, hey, do you know how much he left? And the guy responded, all of it. And that's how it is for all of us. There's nothing in this world. You might have money, you might have riches, you might have possessions, but you don't actually have anything. You are a steward of the Lord's resources while you're here on this earth. And when you go on to be with the Lord, when you go on and you die in this life, you leave everything behind. And what Paul is saying here is that everything that's precious to me, everything that actually matters, I have entrusted it to God because I know that he is able to guard it even better than I can. What's precious to you? Is it your family? Maybe it's a family that you want to have one day. Maybe it's your job. Maybe your health. In Paul's case right here in this instance, it was his very life. He knew that he was in Jew. He knew that Nero was going to kill him. But he knew that he had already entrusted his life to God, and there was nothing that could get it out of the hands of God. Whatever were to happen to Paul, he knew he would be all right because God was in control. Whatever God is doing in your life, he's not forgotten about you. Whatever dream maybe he's put in your heart, he's not forgotten it's there. He's the one that put it there in the first place. The question is, are you going to trust God and entrust it back to Him? Or maybe you don't really think He's able because you don't really know who He is. I know for me, God does things very differently than I would. When I look at where I've been and I I look at the the future of where I seem to be going, a lot of times it doesn't line up with the, the dreams that I believe God has put in my heart. He seems to be taking more detours than I would take. But am I going to trust him regardless? Because God's ways are different than our ways, yes, but even more than that, God's ways are higher than our ways, and God's ways are better than our ways. And anything I have that I want to hold on to and say, you know, I don't think God can take this one. I'm going to hold on to this one. I am taking it out of the safest place it could be and putting it in one of the most dangerous places I have, trusting in myself. Paul lived at total peace when he was in prison knowing that the only thing his enemy could take from him was already in the hands of God. You think Nero's going to take my life? Good luck getting it out of the hands of God, is what Paul would say. He had already entrusted in God. And no matter what were to happen, even if he were to die, he knew it was okay because he knew in whom he believed. And he believed that God, he was convinced that God was able to guard what was entrusted to him. Verse 12, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him. When persecution comes and it's coming, where are you going to be keeping your valuables? It is only safe in the hands of God. He is able to guard what I have entrusted to him, fourth statement we'll see, until that day. Now what day is Paul talking about here? Is Paul talking about the day of his death that is right there before him? In a sense, yeah, but that's not what Paul was looking at. See, Paul knew that his death was not the day, but it was the doorway that would lead him to the day. You see, this world is not our home, and Paul knew that. Paul knew that this world is not what we were created for. You were created for true fellowship and communion with God. You were created for an environment in which you could know him, Daily and walk deeper with him every single day. This world, it's just the warm up, it's the overture to what is to come. And Paul knew that what is to come is way better than anything that we could face in this world. The Bible says in 1 John 3 2, that we know that when Jesus appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. The moment that you die, if you are a follower of Jesus, you will be made complete and you will be made into the image of Jesus Christ. When you reach that day, the problems of this world will all pass away. When you reach that day, you will never regret having lived a single day for Jesus. And when you reach that day, no amount of persecution or hardship will even matter. Because the gospel is worth it. And that day will make it worth it all. While Paul lived very intentionally on mission for the Lord, he always did so knowing that the best was yet to come. He knew that this world did not offer what he was looking for. He knew that it was better what was to come than anything he could experience in this life. He was living his life for Christ, but he knew that the moment he went to be with the Lord, it was nothing but gain for him. See, this world offered nothing for him, that eternity for him as a follower of Jesus would not offer something so much better than anything we could imagine. And Paul said that he looked forward to not just being with the Lord, but at home with the Lord. Paul knew this was not his home but that his home is where he was going on that day. That's why Paul, when he found himself in prison, he was facing death because of the gospel. He was able to say, for this reason I'm persecuted, but I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day.